Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. How are you feeling about today? Um, a little bit nervous, I think. Um, I feel I feel good to uh, be talking about something that's so important, but maybe a little nervous because it is kind of hard to talk about. What about you? Yeah, same, but looking forward to it. Yeah. So in case people are wondering why we might be a little uh, nervous or excited, um, today we're going to talk about what it means to live in the world as white women. And especially as white Christian women, Katie, you and I happen to be part of a significant majority that has very real privilege and power in our country. And one of the privileges of being white is that we don't really have to think about being white because it's the default pretty much everywhere we go. And because we don't have to think about it, that usually means we're really uncomfortable talking about it because most of us don't have any practice doing it. So today we're going to resist the urge to turn away from the discomfort and we're diving in head first. So Katie, what has been your experience of being white? Oh, I see how this goes. We just we just football it to the other person. Yes, it exactly. Over. <laughs> just teasing. <laughs> You'll get your chance. Well, I first think about the expression, a fish doesn't know it's wet, doesn't know mm-hmm. what water is because it's lived its whole life in water. And I think that that expression works on one level, but of course... There are a lot of differences between fish and human beings, and we have consciousness and awareness. So I think the mm-hmm. experience of being whiteness and not talking about it or recognizing it is is part of the privilege itself, because obviously we you know, can tell that people have different skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think about kind of the expression of fish doesn't know it's wet, I lived most of my life in white spaces. I lived in white neighborhoods growing up. I attended all white schools. I mean, maybe a handful of kids of color, most of whom didn't stay, I imagine because of the racism they experienced. I worshiped in white churches. I had white friends going back to the all white schools and white churches. So with very few exceptions as a kid. And I didn't have any meaningful relationships with people of color until college. Um, And even looking back at that time period, I was still really unaware of my whiteness and how it shaped me that it was a thing at all to be talked about. Mm -hmm. When I thought about race, which was infrequently, even then I thought about someone being black or brown. I didn't think about being a white person as having Mm -hmm. a racial identity of any kind. Recently, I read a book. I'm actually finishing it, but I'm almost done with Robin DeAngelo's book called What Does It Mean to Be White, which Mm -hmm. is a really good resource that we'll link to. And she names three different patterns that come up with white people when they try to talk about their whiteness. They distance themselves from the topic, Mm -hmm. they intellectualize it, and they rationalize it. And I've noticed that in myself, and I've noticed it in groups of white people when I'm trying to talk about whiteness. So I hope that anyone listening who identifies as a person of color, if you hear us doing that today, we would love your feedback because we're all learning how to do this. So um, we're going to try to avoid those patterns, but also recognizing that that's part of our racial identity um, and racial patterning. So one of the things I've tried to do to be more conscious of my whiteness is to talk about it like we're doing today, to Mm -hmm. talk about uh, being white with other white people, um, to talk about myself as being white, to name things that are part of white culture, 
uh, there used to be this website called Stuff White People Like. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's old now, and I don't think they've had, they you know, like a lot of blogs, they turned it into a book and sold it, and then they've never updated it anymore. Uh, but it's really like a satirical site, mm-hmm. but also very true. Um, it's old, but I used to read that religiously, and some of the entries I remember um, about stuff white people like were ugly sweater holiday parties. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Definitely been to a few of <laughs> Yes. Promising to learn a new language, I thought was really funny. Oh, and gosh. my favorite was the idea of soccer. The idea <laughs> of soccer. <laughs> Not actually playing it, just the idea of soccer. Right. Uh, At least in America, really anyway. Funny. Right, right. Everywhere, everybody else calls it football, but we call it soccer here. We got to be different. And we love the idea of it. <laughs> we love the idea of it. Uh, it was really a funny website, but accurate way of pointing out that whiteness is quirky. And white people do have a distinct culture and that just because it's the dominant culture doesn't make it everyone's culture, clearly. And just one quick story I'll share. I was not in the classroom when this happened, but during divinity school, there was a, some kind of class where they were talking about different like pop culture icons and there were white people presenting and they said something like, well, we all know the Beatles or something like that. And the um, black students in the room were like, we don't know the Beatles songs. Like, we don't <laughs> listen to that. And just those assumptions about kind of what what cultural identities or um, figures that we follow or listen to, like, just that it kind of points back to the stuff white people like, just assuming it's pervasive because white people like it or engage with it. That's interesting. I think that's a really good point. And something that um, that I think is related is with it's a lot of white people think that because white because our white culture is kind of this like pervasive default a lot of white people think that they have no culture therefore you know mm-hmm. that they don't really have a culture and so it's why we see a lot of white people borrowing elements of other people's cultures to try to like be a little more interesting or be a little cooler um and that is appropriation of other people's cultures to like make yourself um for the aesthetic value usually because you don't really necessarily know all the like deep cultural meanings of those of the parts of the culture that you're borrowing um but i think i just think that's really interesting because when we that's another it's kind of another way that um that white people kind of center being white and kind of distance ourselves from other cultures um like you mentioned, and just kind of pick and choose the things that we think look cool about those cultures to, to appropriate for ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, um, probably, you know, cultural appropriation is probably something we could spend an entire episode on, but, um, so I'll just leave that there, but I think that's a really good point. So I had a similar upbringing to yours. I lived in mostly white neighborhoods. I lived in a kind of a suburb area. I went to a mostly white school. It was, um, it's more diverse now, definitely. And it was, it was diverse. Um, but most of the white kids were all grouped together in the same classes. And, and, um, most of my friend groups, we were all kind of, we, we kind of followed the same tracks in school. And so, um, most of my friends were white. And then I went to, uh, the university of Mississippi, which, um, 
I didn't give a whole lot of thought to when I was growing up um, and when I was choosing colleges. I picked the college that, honestly, that gave me the best um, financial aid package. So I didn't really mm-hmm. consider the um, the very real um, historic legacy and racial implications of attending a school like University of Mississippi, which is also known as Old Miss, which is a term that I don't really use now to, when I talk about my alma mater, I don't call it Ole Miss because that is a term, um, back to the plantation days. The Mm. wife of the plantation owner was referred to as the Ole Miss. Oh, I didn't know that background. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the university of Mississippi was like the flagship, uh, university for the state. And so she was referred to as the Ole Miss, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, acknowledging that, naming that, um, is something that I get funny looks for because I still live in Mississippi. And so people um, that hear me call it the University of Mississippi, like it's kind of awkward like <laughs> for me to not call it Ole Miss, but it's a real mm. conscious decision on my part. Um, and, you know, looking back on my childhood, I would say I was raised with the the idea that everyone is equal no matter their skin color and that everybody should be respected, kind of in that colorblind way. I don't know if that's something that you that rings true for you, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of my white peers were raised like that um, because it, it was a pretty common way to talk about race in the 80s and 90s. Um, in this, I don't see color or, um, color, skin color doesn't matter. And I think because a lot of our white peers can probably relate to this, I think it's important to explore it a little more and what the problems with color blindness might be. Because I can see how people might think, you know, isn't that a good thing? We're not judging people based on their skin color. We treat everyone exactly the same. So isn't that a good thing? But let's talk about the problems that are kind of inherent in this colorblind approach or saying things like, I don't see color. Um, you know, you mentioned the the three things that white people tend to do when we're talking about race, and one of those was distancing. And I think when we talk about this colorblind idea, we're distancing ourselves from the very real <laughs> truth that we have differences in skin color and that those differences affect how we move through the world, how we're perceived in the world. And so saying there's no such thing as color or we shouldn't see color, it's ignoring those differences that race even exists in the first place. And it invalidates the experiences of people of color that might be different from our experiences of white people because of the racism and oppression that they deal with because of their skin color. And it's Another way of just shutting down a conversation about race. If race comes up, you're like, well, I don't see color. I don't think that, you know, skin color shouldn't matter. We shouldn't even um, consider that. So it just shuts down the conversation right there. As if just acknowledging the fact that differences in skin color exist and talking about race is a bad thing in and of itself, which it's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another problem I see with, with colorblindness is that it's a way of pretending that racism doesn't exist. Like when people say, why do we need affirmative action? Why can't we just pick the best candidate for this job or for this college? 
regardless of their skin color? Why do we even know need to know what their skin color is? But in this case, being colorblind completely ignores the systemic racism in our country that keeps people of color out of positions of power, which is why we need programs like affirmative action in the first place. So I was reading this article in Psychology Today that talks about colorblind ideology, and I thought this quote was really helpful. We'll link to this article in the show notes. So the article says, Many Americans view colorblindness as helpful to people of color by asserting that race does not matter. But in America, most underrepresented minorities will explain that race does matter, as it affects opportunities, perceptions, income, and so much more. Instead of resulting from an enlightened, albeit well-meaning position, colorblindness comes from a lack of awareness of racial privilege conferred by whiteness. White people can guiltlessly subscribe to colorblindness because they're usually unaware of how race affects people of color and American society as a whole. And I think that that does a really good job of summing up like what the problems with being colorblind are. And even though our intentions are good and our parents and educators' intentions were good um, back in the day, we're trying to just teach our kids to respect everyone. That colorblind idea is really just lip service to these ideas of equality and fairness, but it doesn't really teach kids about the very real ways in which our society unfairly targets and oppresses people who aren't white. And it gives us white people an easy way out to avoid taking on the discomfort of talking about race. Does that, does any of that kind of ring true for you? Oh, all of it. Absolutely. And to your last point about the way that we teach kids about race, it made me think of the series on the longest, shortest time about how to talk to your kids about race. Yes. And that when kids ask questions about someone who looks different from them and we say, we, we shame them or say, we don't talk about that. They, and they believe that it's bad. That people who have something different about the way they look, that that means that that difference is not good. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't want to talk about it, then there must be something negative behind it. So I think that that part's really important. Also, the idea of colorblindness and a person saying, I don't see race, I treat everyone equally, that also reinforces the idea that racism is about individual people and their beliefs. And that Mm -hmm. if everyone individually didn't see color, that that would dismantle racism. And that is just not how racism works. As you said, Mm -hmm. racism is systemic. It's systemic. It's not about the individual um, doings of any one person. It's it's an institutional legacy that we all inherit, and some of us benefit from it, and some of us are penalized for it. And so we Mm -hmm. have to talk about what that is. Um, So... Because white people are so reticent to talk about whiteness and what it means, you know, we haven't done the hard work of, of thinking about all of it and how it all fits together historically. So mm-hmm. we go along with the cultural flow and political clo- flow and talk I mean, tell ourselves that we're colorblindness. Um, and so we miss the important conversation about uh, white supremacy. And I want to make sure that we know what that means because mm-hmm. when we talk about white supremacy – Folks will, white folks will often say, well, I don't have a Confederate flag. I don't go to neo-Nazi rallies. Um, I'm not a white supremacist. Okay, so I hear you, white people. So let's define what white supremacy is. Um, I got this definition from the Challenging White Supremacy Workshop, which is a San Francisco-based organization that does anti-racist training workshops. And they define white supremacy as 
historically based, institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of continents, nations, and peoples of color by white peoples and nations Mm -hmm. of the European continent for the purpose of maintaining and defining a system of wealth, power, and privilege. And I know that that was a lot. We will put the definition up on the show notes because there's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. I think the most important piece for us is to get it's institutional. It's historic. It's mm-hmm. rooted in every single institution that we interact with today. Um, so while each of us individually has our own work to do to unpack how whiteness shapes us and grants us access to spaces and opportunities, that individual work is never going to bring an end to institutional racism in the form of white supremacy. Absolutely. I think we're going to have a really packed um, uh, website or web page for our <laughs> yeah, show notes well, this time. of links. <laughs> there's like, there's a lot of good stuff here. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work to be done by us white folks. There's a lot of reading we need to do. There's a lot of educating of ourselves we need to do. And, um, you know, we're just happy to contribute to that. But yeah. I have another, here, I have another article here Excellent. I want to um, add to the to show reading. notes. We need to be reading. Yeah. Yep. So you mentioned uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, and I have not read her book, but I did recently read a really good article that she wrote um, called No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. And um, have you, did you, have you read it? Mm -mm. I haven't. Okay. So she talks about um, the reactions that she gets from fellow white people whenever she uses the phrase white supremacy. And um, I related to that article a lot because I get the same reactions whenever I use that phrase. Um, I've started using it more lately. I just feel like it's it's time. Like, we got to start calling things what they are. And um, we have to take some of the power away from these words so that we can actually have conversations about this. But when I say the phrase white supremacy, I get uncomfortable looks. People change the subject uh, whenever I use it around white people. And one thing I've been thinking about that uh, that I think has been helpful for me to understand is that when we say white supremacy, like you mentioned earlier, people say, well, I don't I don't wave a Confederate flag. I'm not in the KKK. Those are the things that the phrase white supremacy like conjures up for people. It's it's really bad stuff. Uh, Most people think of like Nazis and slavery and genocide and KKK. And yeah, it's a scary term, and I get that. I get why white people don't want to be associated with that. Most white people don't belong to a hate group. But we can't be afraid to call things what they are. And like you said, we live in a society that centers whiteness and channels power and wealth to white people. That is white supremacy at its most basic level. And we really should be naming that and calling it what it is. And I see a lot of similarities with how white people react to the words white supremacy and the word racist. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a really hard time acknowledging our own racism because when we think of the word racist, again, we think Hitler, slaveholders, KKK, and we think, well, I'm not any of those things, so I I can't possibly be racist. But to ignore and dismiss our own racist beliefs, even the ones that are really subtle, It's perpetuating the system of white supremacy, and it avoids the hard work of actually talking about it, thinking about it, learning about ourselves, and changing those beliefs so that we can work toward changing the institutions. And 
so I guess the conclusion I've come to is that it's really why I say these words. Um, I think it's important for us as white people to just use these words in a really neutral way to take some of the fear and the power out of them because it's that fear that keeps us from having challenging, difficult, uncomfortable conversations with each, with each other that might actually help move us forward. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of something that Dr. Willie Parker shared when we were all together in Mississippi when he talked about mm-hmm. rape culture and that mm-hmm. he could say as a man, well, I don't rape women, so I don't really have to think about rape culture or dismantling rape mm-hmm. culture. And then he said, but what... What I have to do to dismantle rape culture is to be anti, an anti-rapist, you know. And so it, yeah. it can't. It's not enough just to say, "Well, I don't participate in this, um, in this violent behavior or this racist behavior." It's got to be, I'm going to make sure that I'm dismantling the systems that created a culture in which women can be raped or people of color are discriminated against or killed in the streets. Um, so that that's kind of a helpful analogy for me as he was talking about being a man and fighting rape culture that we as white people have to fight white supremacy. Mhm. I yeah, I it's definitely um similar and I love that you bring that up. I think I hear a lot of conversations about racism stop with, well I would never use the n-word. Nobody in my family ever uses the n-word. That's that seems to be like the 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 thing that means we're not racist (laughs) yeah that's the low bar that means we're not racist and um that and maybe that's more prevalent here in the south um because unfortunately there are still people that use that word um it wasn't a word that I really heard growing up until I got to college but I definitely heard it at the University of Mississippi (laughs) In the early 2000s. Right. Um, and I know that they're doing some really important work there to uh, to rename some of the buildings on campus that have been named after some really terrible, um, terrible white folks. And um, they're doing some, you know, they're doing some racial reconciliation work. But, uh, you know, as early as or as, as recently as the 2000s, there was still when I was there, there was still a lot of, um, racial tension and inequality. And, uh, I got exposed to this idea of like what some real, like some real racist, uh, beliefs and, um, strategies and things might be. Mm. But I, as I hear that come out of my mouth, um, real racist, there's no form of racism that's one more real or another. Right, so you know? it's like more blatant. Um, more blatant. Yeah, exactly. More blatant. But the subtle stuff is just as real. The institutional stuff is just as real. Um, and that, I think, is the point we're trying to get at. So we can shift maybe to talking a little bit about our faith communities. Um, when you think about our faith communities, how might they shape our understanding of race? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like I said earlier, my church growing up was predominantly white, and we occasionally would have guest preachers who were people of color to all white congregations, which was kind of an interesting dynamic. And just to allude to the colorblindness thing, I remember one of the preachers of color, like just naming that obvious fact, like I'm a white, I'm a black man in front of a white congregation. And the pastor's wife said, brother, I don't see color. And I was like, don't, hey, don't say brother. 
Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And two, like, yes, you do. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes, you do see color. And, um, yeah, so just more of the same of the colorblindness thing. And that was really the only time I can think of in church that we ever talked about race. Isn't that sad? I'm lucky now to mm-hmm. be in a faith community that really takes whiteness um, and racial reconciliation and white supremacy seriously. And we are in the midst of doing a series this fall for adults uh, focused on whiteness. So each week there are two speakers. One's a white person, one's a person of color, with the focus being on whiteness, not just race, but on whiteness, getting us past the discomfort of talking about what it means to be white. Mm, Uh, So um, I unfortunately have not been able to go to the last couple ones because I'm doing children's ministry stuff, which is also very important. But I get to do that conversation tomorrow with a friend of mine. And um, this conversation has actually been really helpful in thinking about what I'm going to share. And um, I hope to share some of the resources that we've been talking about and the definition of, of white supremacy, I think in particular, will be really important, even for those progressive, liberal, well-meaning white folks that I go to church with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions that I do have about faith communities is kind of around the culture of worship, because I think we we value the idea of worshiping in a multicultural way. Um, but there are some cultural practices in church that to me feel like very white, um, mm-hmm. white church that I go to, like the mainline Protestant churches that I've been to. It's like pretty buttoned up, you know, like you mm-hmm. sit a lot. There's like some singing to organ music. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not very expressive. It's like more introverted, I would say, other than when you have to pass the piece. And when I've gone to um, African-American churches, like generally, it's just a different kind of experience. The services are usually longer. The music is more um, like you clap along to it. If you are someone who can clap on the beat, <laughs> um, there's a lot more kind of give and take with the person preaching. Like there's more like call and response sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then just thinking about other cultures. I mean, Latino, Latina churches that are going to be doing services in Spanish. Um, you know, I'd like to visit some churches that have figured out a way how to like bridge all of those differences and create a worship experiences that meets the needs of different kinds of folk. Because what I don't want to see happen is that there's just like a lowest common denominator thing that happens and you lose that like flavor of different styles of worship. So I don't know how we can get past segregated churches when like, to me, the, the culture of worship seems so racial. That is such an interesting way of looking at it I hadn't thought about that because yeah a lot of a lot of white Protestant mainline little more liberal churches do have like these sort of diversity initiatives multicultural initiatives um but I think you're right like that has to be really intentional and it can't be lip service or like you said lowest common denominator type stuff like just throw in a a hymn by a person of color and we've done our job right. or whatever like there's such some really distinct yeah exactly there's some really distinct differences that have to be addressed I think that's really interesting um I maybe we should look for some some churches that are really setting setting an example of, of like moving moving in this direction because 
I would like some more information about this, I think. Yeah, if you're a church like that and you want to contact us, we'd love to talk to you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, maybe even talk to you on the show. Yeah, we be our guests. Yeah. We're going to try to figure out one day how to have guests. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully soon. Um, so I have never really attended a church that has addressed race either. And I've been in, I mean, the churches I've always attended have been predominantly white. When I lived in Nashville for a little while, I did, um, just by virtue of being a bigger city, um, some of the churches I attended had a little bit more of a diverse attendance, but, um, generally the, the denominations that I've, uh, participated in have been all white. So I don't really have experience with in a, in a small, like a uh, local way of how the church has shaped race, um, and my sort of racial identity. But I, I do have a lot of thoughts on how sort of American Christian church, is being used right now by white Americans um, to justify laws and policies that um, unfairly target or oppress people of color. And the church has historically been used this way. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not really talking about that in our white faith spaces. Um, And it's really troubling. And I think it's something that's important to talk about because like we've said all throughout this episode, we have to call things what they are and we have to get more comfortable naming them or else nothing changes. And this stuff is really hard to talk about. Um, some people listening to this podcast might be thinking, why are they even talking about this stuff? It's too political. It has nothing to do with faith. You know, I come for the faith stuff. Um, or I come for the feminism. Why are we talking about race? But like, you know, feminism is a movement. (laughs) Racism is a system. (laughs) Feminism is talking needs to be talking about dismantling systems of oppression. Um, it's all tied together, and that all comes back to our faith as well. Mm-hmm. Even though I hear that a lot in my faith spaces, that religion and politics should be kept separate, um, that it's not, quote, holy to talk about, quote, secular issues at church. And I think it's part of the reason why after something like Charlottesville – you know, we heard a lot of religious people calling for things like peace and unity, um, love and togetherness, without actually naming the racism and violence that was committed over that weekend by white people against people of color and non-Christians. And something that I've learned recently, um, been thinking about recently, is that the idea of keeping religion and politics separate was very deliberately spread after the Civil War. There Mm. is a really interesting piece in the Washington Post toward the end of 2016 by Reverend Dr. William Barber. I think, have we talked about him on the podcast before? I think we might have lifted him up in the repairs of the breach um, in an an earlier episode. And he's now Bishop Barber. He just got Bishop. Oh, did he? <laughs> he did. So, so Bishop, how do you, how, what is the uh, honorific for that? Like Bishop Bishop Barber. Reverend? Bishop Barber. (laughs) BB. So his um, uh, piece in the post kind of detailed the history of this idea of keeping politics and religion separate and how um, after the Civil War, well, this is really interesting to learn about. So after the Civil War, there was this uh, movement of black and white ministers who got together throughout the South to advance social programs um, like public education and economic empowerment for 
freed slaves and poor people. And they were doing this to spread the good news of the gospel, you know, because those ministers at the time saw that working on behalf of the poor people through social means um, went hand in hand with spreading the good news of, of the gospel. But you can imagine uh, that the white former slave-owning plantation class did not respond well to this. Um, and there was a really strong backlash to that movement. Um, and the rise of the, of the KKK coincided with this very deliberate movement at the end of the 19th century by white supremacist theologians to start printing textbooks and writing doctrine that taught future generations of people of faith to separate their religion from politics. Mm-hmm. And the whole purpose was to keep faith communities to stop advocating for causes that would benefit black people. White supremacy, y'all. Exactly. And that campaign was incredibly successful because after that, the white Christian church basically stood aside during the Jim Crow and the civil rights eras and Mm -hmm. when they weren't actively participating in the oppression of black people. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. It feels like, it really feels like we're still there today. And Mm. that is the part of this that really troubles me. Um, When we don't talk about our history, when we don't acknowledge our history, we cannot acknowledge our present. And, um, you know, I'm really encouraged to hear about what your church is doing, um, talking about whiteness and talking about race. Um, There are a lot of white Christians who are tackling this subject. But where I live, it's not really happening And when it is, it's not enough. It's not often. And the thing that I think is important to acknowledge that we Christians absolutely will let our religion influence our politics in a lot of other areas. Mm -hmm. Hello, limiting women's access to reproductive health (laughs) care. But when it comes to race, we're always like, oh, we shouldn't mix religion and politics. You know, why are we making this political? This isn't about politics. Just love everybody. Just love everybody. Why does it have to get political? The inconsistency there, mm-hmm. the hypocrisy there is um, a, a real problem. And the thing is, it's our white privilege that allows us to yet again ignore and distance ourselves from the systemic problems faced by communities of color. Because if these problems aren't happening to us, we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to think about it. We can just ignore it. But black churches don't have that privilege. Their members are dealing with racism and oppression every day. They don't get to pretend that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's why, um, you know, we've got to do a lot better job um, in the white Christian church of really dealing with this. We got to deal with our Christian supremacy too, but we can talk about that some other day. Lord. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The layers upon layers. Layers and layers. This topic really is a big one, and there's a lot of elements to it that I'm sure we'll come back to in future episodes, but we do want to keep this relatively short. (laughs) We've been talking a while, but it's good. It's all good stuff. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Um, so hopefully this will give us some ideas of, of um, that could spark some future episodes. Uh, but let's move the conversation to what we're reading. And we've also decided to start talking about what we're listening to as well. So, Katie, tell me what you are reading these days. I've been reading so many good things. But the one I wanted to lift up today is Hunger by Roxanne Gay. I love her writing. I will devour any Roxanne Gay 
essay, mm-hmm. book, like anything she writes, um, or what she tweets about, I'm like, yes, I mm-hmm. want to come all over it. So if you haven't read her collection, Bad Feminist, you should. It is so good. Excellent, where she talks about mm-hmm. kind of what we talked about in our feminism episode about like, how do I do some things in my life that maybe aren't quote unquote feminist, but still participate in the movement? So um, that was when I got hooked on her writing. But the memoir Hunger uh, is about her experience of being in her body and being fat. And I say fat, not overweight. Fat is what she uses. And I think we're going to do a whole episode on on like diet and fitness culture. So we'll talk more about that. Uh, being fat and the precipitating event in her life that caused her to gain a, t- a lot of weight very quickly uh, as a way to, to protect herself in an unconscious way. Um, so it's not a weight loss memoir, which I found really refreshing because I feel like every book about being mm-hmm. a fat person is about I'm no longer being a fat person. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really a raw and real and vulnerable story. Um, at some points in the book, I had to put it down and just consider what it must have been like to write that and how painful it must have been for her to write it. And her pain really comes through at a lot of points in the book. But I hope that it's something that other people can identify with. I mean, I definitely identified with some of it um, and that we can take seriously the complexity around eating and shame and sexual violence and women's bodies. So I don't know, Ashley, if you've read it. Um, it seems like the kind of no, book that not you yet. enjoy. So put it on your list. It's yep. it's a really good read. It is on my list. I feel like your library system might be a little bit more um, current than mine. <laughs> we don't really get the bestsellers. <laughs> we, get, uh, we get stuff that's a little older. So I um, have to make the decision I have to prioritize which books I'm going to buy this month. <laughs> so. Oh wow, yeah, that definitely changes things when you have to when you have to buy every book. Well, whenever you get a chance to read it, I think it's one of those books that's that's like timeless and um, will yeah. definitely be current and relevant. Sadly, no matter when you get a chance to pick it up. So, what are you listening yeah. to these days? Since podcasts are not like library systems, and you can listen to what's new and current. <laughs> I know they're free. So I'm actually listening to a lot of music these days. It's been um, part of my self care. So I want to lift up the song. Have you heard it yet? Almost like praying by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Mm -mm. Okay. So he is the creator of Hamilton, the musical. People are probably really familiar with him. Um, Miranda's from Puerto Rico and he's been really trying to raise awareness of what's going on on the island after Hurricane Maria. And it's really been on my heart because I, um, my, my area, I'm, I'm a Katrina survivor. Um, and my whole Mississippi Gulf Coast was, I mean, wrecked. And it's been 12 years and, and we're on the other side of it. But um, there's a lot that only has just now come back in the last couple of years. And so it's really, Puerto Rico has really been on my heart Um because of just their infrastructure issues and how isolated they are. And so um, Miranda has pledged his own money. He's gotten a bunch of Latin American and Puerto Rican um, actors and musicians, um, celebrities, to pledge their money. Um, And then they also made this song um, to raise money for Hurricane Maria relief. And you want to talk about white supremacy, you can look at our legacy of colonialism of Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and our government's vastly different responses to hurricanes Harvey and Irma on mainland U.S. 
um, and our response <laughs> versus the response uh, to Maria in Puerto Rico, which has been shameful and embarrassing and, and really terrible. Um, so all the proceeds of the song are going to the Hispanic Federation. You don't have to buy the song to donate. You can donate directly at hispanicfederation.org. And I didn't, I wasn't sure what the lyrics to the song were. Uh, so I looked them up. They're all in Spanish, but it also didn't, didn't flow. So I was, I looked up the lyrics and I found out that they're, um, the names of all 78 of Puerto Rico's municipalities. And so they're said in a row, um, almost like a chant. Mm. And when you say them together, it's almost like praying, which is where mm. the, uh, the title of the song comes from. So I think it's really beautiful. Mm, I love that. We'll link to that in the show notes as yep. well. We will link to that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And yeah. you're also up. You're sharing a lot today. It's good. So you oh, get to yeah. share your kindreds <laughs> of the moment with us. Who have you got for us today? All right. <laughs> okay. So try to stay on theme a little bit today. In keeping with today's episode, I want to lift up the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation based here in Mississippi. They are doing some really great work around calling things what they are, naming our historic legacy. Their vision, which I really love, is... A world where people honestly engage in their history in order to live more truthfully in the present, where the inequities of the past no longer dictate the possibilities of the future. Mm, And that is just one sentence from their vision. The rest, I mean, their vision and mission is really great. Um, They have several youth and adult initiatives aimed at improving racial understanding and connection in Mississippi and creating more equitable systems of healthcare, education, economy for all citizens. They're, they're, um, really good at naming racism when it comes up in our from our history into our current events, which I think is really important. But they're not just lip service. In 2006, they actually spearheaded legislation that made civil rights and in a human rights framework education mandatory in all K-12 through public schools in the state. Yes. Um, which is really interesting to me because I missed that. Mm. I graduated long before that. And um, I've talked before about how our um, Mississippi history of, of like the civil rights era um, and the Jim Crow era, how lacking that was. You know, the, I didn't even know the Biloxi wait-ins happened right outside my back door. And um, I'm learning about that as an adult. So hopefully um, that has really changed a lot. So to learn more about the Winter Institute, you can follow them on Facebook or you can visit winterinstitute.org. So that's our kindreds of the moment. Great. Well, I hope all the white folks listening feel like they've got a list of things to read, a list of things to do, some places that they can support, put your money where your mouth is. And we'll continue to be thinking about opportunities for you all to talk with us about what it means to be white. Next time, we're going to talk about taking care of our mental health and destigmatizing therapy. So we'll talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 